Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. All right. Are we doing some are we doing some Googling? Uh Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias, here with Jane Coaston, ProPublica's Darren Lind. Uh, the Democratic Convention is underway, but we are going to set that aside for a moment and talk about the Postal Service, uh, which is in the news lately, uh, but also at least as as I understand it, a lot of the things that people are talking about right now are actually sort of longer standing postal issues that have collided with some of the short-term concerns. So one of the things people do with the Postal Service is uh, mail, vote-by-mail ballots. And one of the things that's happened during the pandemic is that there has been a great deal of increased interest in expanding vote-by-mail options uh, so that people don't need to go to polling places in person. A little bit oddly, this kind of turned into a, a fairly sharply partisan dispute for, I'm not sure actually like good cynical reasons, but that's the road. You know, like a good cynical reason would be that vote by mail clearly helps Democrats, which I don't actually think is that well established as a factual matter, but it seems to be what Trump thinks. And so he's been discouraging vote by mail. Republicans have been opposing legislative efforts to expand it. And so then when Trump's appointees to run the Postal Service started doing things that are raising the question of whether ballots will be mailed out to people in time, whether ballots that are sent back in will be delivered in time, and whether in a more purely conspiratorial form, like will the votes somehow just like not be counted? Uh, And then Trump, in his typical manner, as people were starting to get stressed about this, did not like go on TV to say like, no, 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 it's fine. Like, even if mail gets delivered a little bit slower as a result of these cost-cutting measures, every ballot that's properly postmarked will be counted. Instead, he he went on Fox Business and was said like, oh, the Democrats are trying to spend more money on the post office. And if they do that, everybody will be voting by mail and will lose. Which really like took the you know, it's it's like jet fuel to the takes uh, whenever Trump says the quiet part loud, or in this case, maybe just says something that's not true. But it definitely kicked it up into a higher gear so that a a long simmering medium term dispute about Postal Service funding and a long simmering medium term dispute about mail in voting became like this is the urgent crisis of our democracy today. Right. I mean, I think I'd actually subdivide that a little further. You have the the Trump strand of this, which is, you know, appears to just be the latest manifestation of Donald Trump loves talking about voter fraud and raising the specter of voter fraud. And Donald Trump has decided that this is an avenue that allows him to talk a lot about voter fraud. And like that has led some to to a certain degree, some strategy in the executive branch, like the 
Department of Justice is currently suing Nevada over a law that expands voting by mail because it argues is arguing voter fraud in Pennsylvania. It's on, you know, the side of a lawsuit trying to stop them from expanding vote by mail. In that lawsuit, a Trump appointed judge actually required like demanded that they produce some evidence that voting by mail expands voter fraud and no evidence has thus far been produced. So we're going to see how that works out. But like generally that has been developing separately from the postal service management conversation, at least as far as we can see, right? Like absent any smoking gun where Louis DeJoy says to Congress, Trump told me to stop people from voting by mail. Like we are seeing the effects of postal service reorganization that have started not from the president as far as we can tell, but from this new postmaster general who was appointed in June, has done a lot of like consolidating power at the top of the organization and has implemented a lot of of things that you could call cost-cutting strategies or could call long-term realignment, but that all in the short term appear to have the effect of delaying mail, such as restricting overtime, instructing postal workers that at the end of their shift, they need to be back at the office. They can't be like trying to get the rest of their rounds completed, such as the decommission of lots of mail sorting machines, which are bulky and expensive, but also help sort mail there is an argument there that we can that we can get into but it's you know it, it, there have been a lot of changes in a short period of time under the DeJoy administration and then in addition to the thread of voting by mail becoming a more appealing option during the pandemic you have the basic fact that the postal service has been hit by an economic collapse <laughs> like a lot of entities that take in revenue on things like ads and so the administration is actually dealing with a lot of shortfalls in agencies that rely on fees and revenues from the out from like sources other than Congress. And many of those have kind of come to Congress hat in hand saying, look, in order for us to continue operations, we're going to need a lot of money. And there's a fundamental longstanding dynamic where like if Congress isn't used to giving you a lot of money to operate because it's used to you getting your money from other sources, there's a higher barrier to entry. So the postal, the question of funding the Postal Service was already a partisan issue before Donald Trump decided to kick it up a notch with the vote by mail stuff because there's just a resistance to giving money to agencies that you expect to be able to fund, you know, if not fund themselves, at least be able to pick up more of the slack on their own. So this is especially worth discussing for a couple of reasons. Something that keeps happening throughout this administration is there's existing stuff and then there's Trump saying stuff. And those two entities have run into each other to create a giant cluster. And so United States Postal Service, there was a GAO report that was filed earlier this year, uh, an audit that um, stated that essentially that United States Postal Service, I'll quote from it, their current business model is not financially sustainable, and they've had about $78 billion in losses since 2007. It's worth noting that a lot of government agencies operate at a loss, including a lot of government agencies that conservatives really like and a lot of government agencies that liberals and Democrats seem to really like. But the challenge the United States Postal Service has faced um, as a result of this audit, which began in October of 2018, their issue are related to several different areas of there's shrinking mail volumes. Fewer people are sending letters. There's employee compensation and benefits. The United States Postal Service workers, there are many of them, and many of them are getting older, which means that a lot of those benefits that they paid into are now being paid out. And increasing levels of unfunded liabilities, which gets into a lot of the specifics about the things that the United States Postal Service has to do. But earlier this year, in a fiscal quarter report filed in June, the United States Postal Service said that it had, quote, sufficient liquidity to continue operating through at least August 2021. And earlier this year in July, the United States Postal Service reached an agreement with the United States Treasury for a $10 billion loan if it needed to be had. And it's interesting because so much of this, there's the conversation about what U.S. Postal Service has said is that their financial condition is not going to impact their ability to process and deliver election and post political mail. The postmaster told the Postal Service Board of Governors that they were not slowing down election mail or any other mail, despite all of the evidence of that taking place and the Postal Service warning 46 states and D.C. of mail-in ballot delays. So it's worth keeping those two things in mind as well. And... United States Postal Service saying in a op-ed uh, the day before Trump decided to go 
on Fox Business and Say Things, saying that the United States Postal Service is well-prepared and has ample capacity to deliver election mail because they estimated that mailed-in ballots would count for less than 2% of mail volume from mid-September until Election Day. And because the United States Postal Service delivers a lot of pieces of mail, about 471 million pieces of mail on a regular day, and they assume that even if every single registered voter cast him a vote by mail, that would be about 158 million people, they would be able to do so. But this has, again, raised another issue that we've talked about before, and we can get back to talking about the Postal Service and the specificity of the issues facing the Postal Service, is that there's a lot of tendency that when Trump says some things, it's very important we should take it literally. And when Trump says other things, we should ignore it and treat them as off-the-cuff remarks, to quote uh, National Review, or as just kind of like, well, he just says these things, and it's really not worth talking about because you can just ignore this, and he was confused. He confused the two pots of money that are involved with funding the United States Postal Service and how they will work during the election, and that this is confusing and that he didn't mean it, essentially. So either his words matter or his words don't matter, depending on whether or not you need his words to matter or not. And so it, it's been another interesting issue in which there was this existing thing that the United States Postal Service had been responding to. And it's worth also noting that some of the criticism of DeJoy has come in. He uh, is expected to testify before the House, I believe, next week. He is also noted as someone who has donated to the Trump campaign, um, which is a thing that he has done. But so there's this existing thing with the United States Postal Service dealing with a downtick in mail. There's been the longstanding grudge has had uh, that Trump has had against the United States Postal Service and against mail in general, specifically aimed at Amazon and whether or not how much they pay. And it's all very confusing. But there are these existing issues, and then Trump wandered in and, made, and, as he did, made everything confusing and worse. I want to talk about about postal history and how the the pre-Trump nature of the partisan dispute about the postal service was was going because I think it it sets the context for both the Amazon thing and um, some of the the confusions about about voting by mail. So you know, one thing uh, that like happened on Twitter was like some conservative person said, like, the Postal Service loses billions of dollars a year. Any other business that did this would be shut down. And then eight million liberals were like, wait till she finds out about the Pentagon. Ha ha ha. Um, And obviously, like government agencies don't turn a profit routine. I I mean, a handful do based on licensing rules, but it's not like the normal function of a public service to turn a profit. And if you look at the first 150 years or so of the Postal Service, that was just how it went. It was a public service. And in the 19th century, it was a public service that was provided on an unequal basis. So in urban areas where distributing the mail was relatively easy to do, you would get the mail. But in rural areas, you wouldn't. And if you wanted to get your mail, you had to go to town and go to the post office. And so then there was a movement by by populists, uh, Tom Watson from, from Georgia, who has a whole interesting career, but like he had rural free delivery bill. And so this was the idea that the government would deliver the mail to your house on a daily basis, regardless of where you lived. And it was a huge lobbying clusterfuck, uh, because on the one hand, it cost a bunch of money at a time when the government did not like there was no big welfare state then. Um, there were civil war pensions, but this was going to be like the other thing the federal government did. Uh, and then the other thing was that like mom and pop shopkeepers did not like this idea because they liked that people had to come into town to get their mail because the store was also in town and they feared that everybody was going to just order stuff from Sears. You know, if they could get mail delivered to their house, the postmaster general from, I think it was the Harrison administration was like some department store guy, you know, so there was this whole thing, right? It's like, there's nothing new under the sun. We're like postal issues are, it's never just about the mail, right? But so then 20th century, it's a government service. The government delivers mail to your house every day, regardless. And this loses a lot of money. Then starting in the mid 20th century, because of the internal combustion engine and because of like mass printers and stuff like that, it starts to get way cheaper to deliver the mail. And people are mailing more and more shit. 
So like suddenly the postal service is rolling in it and postal workers want like a piece of the pie, uh, particularly in the sort of inflationary climate of the late 60s. There's a illegal strike of postal workers in New York City and it starts to spread elsewhere. So Congress does this postal reform in 1970. And this is like the origin of the modern postal service. So it's spun off as like it's not a government agency anymore. The workers are allowed to form like regular labor unions and bargain collectively, which federal employees aren't otherwise. But the flip side is that the postal service is supposed to finance itself out of its postal revenues. So the idea was the postal workers can bargain for higher pay and blah, 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 blah. But there's like a limit. Right. It's it's capped by the actual financial value of the Postal Service's mail monopoly. So that's great for like 20, 25, 30 years. Then eventually the amount of mail people send starts going down in the 21st century. Right. And this then raises the specter of holy shit. The Postal Service has these unions. They have this very high overhead thing. Like you go to small town America, there's these little rinky dink post offices every place. Uh, The people get like good health benefits, good retirement benefits. And Congress can foresee that at some point in the distant future, this is going to fall apart. So they quietly pass this 2006 law that says the Postal Service has to pre-fund the retirement benefits, which is not how companies normally do things. And you will often hear liberals say the only reason the Postal Service loses money is because of this pre-funding requirement, which until this year, I think, was technically true. But the important thing is that like, regardless of how you handle the pre-funding, The thing where the Postal Service is getting less revenue over time, that's like a real fact. People are just not mailing as much as they used to. And so the question is then, like, what are you going to do about that? And one idea is you could go back to the pre-1970 dynamic and just say, fuck it. We're just going to pay what it costs to deliver mail to everybody's house. And Republicans have been resisting that in part because they don't like spending money on stuff. But in part because something the Postal Service has started to do is that since they've got to drive a truck around to everybody's house, they can also put packages in the trucks. And those packages compete with FedEx and UPS, right? And it's highly effective because it's costly to deliver parcels to every random rural address in America. But if you're already running a truck to every address like that, then it's cheap. Right. So FedEx and UPS don't don't like this, just like the old mom and pop stores didn't want mail delivered to your house. FedEx and UPS don't want mail delivered to everybody's houses. So one lobbying push has been the Postal Service should respond to its fall in revenue by degrading service. So that's like stop Saturday delivery, but Congress won't let them do that. So DeJoy has found this other stuff that isn't prohibited by statute. And it's basically like you look at that postal motto about like neither rain nor whatever, and you just throw all that out. And you say, look, everybody's going to work an eight hour workday. You deliver however much mail you can. And if you can't deliver all the mail, whatever, like we've got what we've got, right? It's not a competitive business. It's not like delivering commodity mail three days slower is going to cause people to use the other commodity mail company because there isn't one, right? And that's the like policy question that we are facing is should the quality of postal service shrink down to what's supported by ongoing postal revenue or should we go back to the pre-World War II idea that like this is a costly but important public service akin to, you know, I don't know, like national parks or like some roads, Um, you know, not that akin to the army, really, because that's not a service. But there's a, there's a, like you pay money to go to a national park, but the national parks don't make money. Right. And if somebody was like, oh, what are you doing, Denali? Like, that's just not what it's about. Um, so that's like the high minded disagreement that I think Trump then blundered into. That's definitely a lot of it. But I do think there are also questions about 
rate and scope of change, right? Like there have been questions about the aging of the Postal Service's infrastructure. Uh, Aaron Gordon of Vice had an investigation that was published earlier this summer about how, you know, Postal Service vehicles keep catching on fire much more often than you would expect trucks to do. So there are definitely, and the kind of the sorting machines question is, is part of this, right? Because sorting machines were something that was an important part of postal infrastructure when most of what the postal service was dealing with was letters. But if you're dealing with packages as a bigger percentage of your flow, sorting machines are taking up a lot of space. They can't help you with the things that you really need delivered. So, you know, there is there is a policy question of, okay, does modernizing the postal service require decommissioning large numbers of these sorting machines? That's Separate from the question of do you need to decommission the sorting machines at exactly the same time as you're reducing the possibility of overtime at the same time as, you know, you're concern, you're removing physical mailboxes that are less, you know, that are less common. You can see those, you can see some of those working in tandem. Like, yes, obviously, if you're telling postal workers, you shouldn't be doing overtime to make your rounds, having fewer mailboxes out there that probably aren't going to have any mail on them, but that they have to schlep out there to check. That makes a certain amount of sense. But doing this at the same time as all these other things, on the part of someone who has only recently come into the position, like this is something that maybe in a more transparent administration, you know, or at very least you would see some kind of counter leaks, right? Where when everyone was freaking out about the removal of mailboxes, you could have you can imagine a world where the DeJoy administration inside the USPS strategically leaks a memo that says that these mailboxes are adding tons and tons of extra time and not actually being used and that you could administer the postal service more effectively if you get rid of them. The fact that there isn't that information because there isn't that transparency and also the kind of rate of change raises questions about how much is this in service of an agenda that's been thought through as to postal service efficiency versus uh, some kind of blind cost cutting that is being allowed by a bunch of political appointees because they changed the structure of the organization to minimize the role of the civil service. Right. And it's also worth noting that some of these plans took place or were launched before DeJoy took over as postmaster general. For one of them, the removal of sorting machines that took place that was that was put in place before DeJoy. And also the letter that was sent warning um, the ballot warning that got a lot of attention from Thomas J. Marshall, who's the general counsel and executive vice president of the Postal Service, because the Postal Service is a different kind of government-ish organization that was planned, again, before the appointment of DeJoy. But this is another example, as Dara was saying, that all of this is happening while Donald Trump is perfectly happy for everyone to be very anxious about the Postal Service and to keep tweeting about how we should save the Postal Service, but not save the Postal Service and everything. Uh, the Because Donald Trump observes his own administration as if he is watching it on television as Donald from Queens, you're next on the air. There are very many moments of this where another administration would be like, no, this is what's happening. There would be some sort of address about here are the things that are happening. And with this administration, you might get that from someone who is not Donald Trump. And we'll drop it in show notes. You have a lot of very considered and thoughtful responses from conservatives and conservative writers on what's actually going on. And actually, this is not a conspiracy theory. And you all need to understand how very sane and normal this all is. And then you have Donald from Queens, who's basically like, I think it would be awesome if everyone got very freaked out about the Postal Service, especially people who are likely to vote for me, because that makes absolutely no sense. And so I'll quote, there's a USA Today opinion piece on this, where essentially, yes, the Postal Service needs to innovate. Maybe that this is a, they call it a, quote, bloated money pit, though, that seems more opiniony than necessary. But essentially, if you wanted to handle this issue, if you wanted to appoint a Trumpian postmaster general, if you wanted to issue these reforms, why wouldn't you do it like three years ago when Donald Trump had uh, Republicans had control of Congress, when there were ample time to have the reforms of the Postal Service that would make it more of an efficient business if that's what they judge to be necessary and not when there's 11 weeks to go until the election. Well, let's let's take a break and talk about that. Yeah, let's talk more about the election per se, because, yeah. 
Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics Podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media. Pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context. And it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. Support for The Weeds comes from Burrow. Okay, are you ready for the understatement of the century? Buying furniture can be frustrating. You end up visiting a bunch of stores searching aimlessly for the right pieces to match your home, then spend hours trying to get those pieces together or together again if you got it wrong the first time. And that's even if you were able to get it through the door. Burrow is a furniture company that wants to make the whole thing easier. Burrow's new Dune line features a contemporary yet timeless look inspired by the craftsmanship of classic mid-century construction. If you're looking to bring a sense of luxury, comfort, and durability to your outdoor spaces, you might want to consider Burrow. Like all of Burrow's pieces, they offer easy assembly and disassembly so you can move or store them away as needed. Not only that, they ship straight to your door for free. Listeners of The Weeds can get 15% off their first order at burrow.com weeds. That's Burrow. B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash weeds for 15% off. Burrow.com slash weeds. I want to talk about this letter that that Jane mentioned that we had mentioned in passing before, because I think that that has been the catalyst for obviously like Donald Trump saying the quiet part loud or just riffing uh, has focused a lot of attention. But the the Postal Service's warning has also, I think, crystallized a lot of these concerns that the Postal Service is at very least not doing as much as it could to make sure that an election where people are less inclined to go to the polls in person can be administered in not just like a complete and fair fashion, but in a timely fashion. Because the thing about absentee ballots is they're not always counted before, you know, they're not that you you haven't always finished counting absentee ballots by the end of election night. And so the prospect that we won't necessarily know who the winner of the election is after election night has started to seem very real. This is what's happened in several primary races in New York, where there hasn't been a winner for, you know, several weeks, because it's taken so long to count the not in-person ballots. And so in that context, the letter that the administration sent where they were warning, you know, something like the overwhelming majority of states, 46 states, that the deadlines that they had set for ballot requesting and for ballot submission were not going to result in the Postal Service being able to get them everything they needed to get in time. And this is something of a I don't want to say principal agent problem, but it's it's definitely a federalism problem, right? Where there was a big push during mid and late spring as the scope of the coronavirus crisis became clear by progressives to ex- to push states to expand, you know, mail-in voting, which was the cul- which is a continuation of existing democratic efforts to like expand the franchise by any feasible means. The problem is that states can set, you know, states can say, oh, yes, to expand the franchise, we're going to say that you can de- you can request an absentee ballot anytime to three days before the election. And you can postmark your ballot as late as 8 p.m. on election night. And we guarantee we'll still count it like states can say that, but states can't guarantee that ballots that are requested three days before the election are sent back to them and like in their coffers <laughs> in time. They can't necessarily guarantee that stuff that's postmarked 8 p.m. on election night is going to arrive at the Board of Elections early the next morning. And so in that context, the Postal Service's letter is like a, hey, states, maybe you should be more realistic in what you're promising your voters can happen. 
there's also an extent to which, again, this is like an ongoing problem that like the Postal Service has been warning states for a while that these are unrealistic. They, The Washington Post, which has had some really excellent coverage of this, uh, quoted the Alabama Secretary of State saying, yeah, you know, the Postal Service has been getting less functional for a while and they've been warning us for a while, which raises the question of why state officials haven't regarded that as a reason to change their schedules. But it is something where, again, if you assume best intentions on everyone's part, you could imagine a world where this is happening as a like, hey, you have a limited window of time to change these deadlines so that you can guarantee that as many ballots as possible are at polling places or at BOE offices by the end of election night. But the Trump administration for a variety of reasons has not d- does not have the presumption of good faith among a large swath of the American electorate. I wonder why that might be. <laughs> I think that there is kind of a double swindle happening around this issue on both sides, right? So the main thing is that the Postal Service was headed in the long term for financial insolvency. Then came the pandemic, which was associated with a huge extra fall in mail volume, like a, like a stepwise decline and some extra costs. The unions for postal workers have been trying for years to get liberals interested in this topic because as a mechanical subject, just switch it back to being a government agency is like a totally viable option. But it's hard to pass laws in America. Like you've got to get people fired up right? And people keep not being fired up. Donald Trump is trying to steal the election is something that liberals, uh, both the sort of uh, upscale resistance liberals and the more like downscale working class people of color Democrats are like both primed to believe. So if you can connect your issue, which is like, It's been clear for the past 10 years that the Postal Service is going to need a large injection of money from Congress to Donald Trump is trying to steal the election. Like you've you've got a winner. Right. So like there's a real interest in it's not that these are unrelated topics, but like they're not identical topics and they are being presented as identical. We need to save the Postal Service, which is to say, bring it back on the government budget in order to save our democracy, right? Which is just like, it's not literally true, but it's it's become a big theme. And it just, it's it's a plausible policy agenda, but it's like one that people had not been agitated about during, you know, the 2016 campaign. Flip side, the Republican idea of driving the Postal Service into bankruptcy so that the universal service obligation gets lifted and the agency becomes privatized. Well, it's not like that would be the end of America. Like, that's how postal service works in Europe. Mail is just more expensive. Like, it's okay. You know, just like covering the cost would be okay. Wrecking the postal service would also be okay. But wrecking the postal service is not a popular idea. So by the same token... If Republicans, like, when they controlled Congress, they could have tried to move a bill privatizing the Postal Service. Like, nobody was stopping them. It's just that it would be hideously unpopular, right? So you need some kind of partisan reason to drive the Postal Service into a state of bankruptcy. And this idea that Democrats only want to give the Postal Service money so they can do voter fraud. Like that resonates with rank and file conservatives in a way that like an abstract appeal to the virtues of the free market, particularly because the specific thing here is that the free market would tell you to stop subsidizing old people in rural areas desire to get paper mail. Like, that's not a good, like, particularly for the Trump era configuration of the GOP, like, that's a terrible message. Like, you could write that for Cato or, like, a Reason article or something like that, but, like, that's never going to go. Whereas, like, Democrats are stealing the election with voter fraud is something conservatives believe, just like Donald Trump is stealing the election with his political appointees is something liberals believe. So we're having this, like more boring debate about 
postal policy as like a proxy about everybody's anxieties about election theft. And if you to to what Dara was saying, if you did want to just like narrowly focus this to like, how can we administer the 2020 election in a fair minded way? Like it's a very solvable problem. It's just like not not really in anybody's interest to solve the problem when they think they can win this like bigger mail war uh, that that's driving everything, um, including President Trump's only actual personal interest in postal issues, appears to be that he wants to raise the rates on Amazon packages because he's mad that Jeff Bezos owns the Washington Post. DeJoy appears to be enough of an ideologue that he has like not actually done that. But that's right. Like to the contrary, there are reports out of, for example, Maine that they've been instructed to prioritize Amazon packages over even USPS priority mail, which is, to my mind, like if you were looking for evidence that Donald Trump is not personally meddling in the affairs of the post office, that's it. It seems like the private parcel industry sold Trump on their privatization agenda by telling him that this would stick it to Amazon. But like, it's not clear that it does stick it to Amazon. And Trump as often has not, I think, like super well-versed in the details of this issue and simply responds in a... I mean, everything we talked about, uh, you guys talked last week about the economic situation and and we talked the, the week before. It seems like Trump's best path out of this would be to just like, spend some money on some stuff and solve people's problems. But he's gotten spun up around like both like his own weird narratives and these like larger policy agendas by conservative actors who like actually do care about the future of like they don't want everybody getting this welfare mail as they see it. It's an interesting issue also because you mentioned that kind of you could read about privatizing the postal service in Reason or Cato. But if you want to view Trump as the populist response to free market excesses of libertarian fusionism, going against the postal post office, which polls really well with Democrats and Republicans, and also is the single largest civilian employer other than the federal government and Walmart in the United States with 30,000 locations that people really like, I think that seems like a poor way to do it because you see kind of the libertarian-leaning folks kind of cheerleading the privatization of the Postal Service and saying, like, why can't it just basically be FedEx and UPS but with a different name? But a lot of people really like the way it is. There very much is kind of the Wells Fargo wagon approach of you don't know what's going to come today. What could it be? And for a lot of older people, especially in rural areas, if you're FedEx or UPS, there's no way you're going to go to a town of 15 people to deliver one person their diabetes medication. But the United States Postal Service will do so. And so I think that it's uh, there's a quote from a, a piece and actually the American conservative, which is definitely more of a populist leaning conservative publication that argues that, you know, the politician, it's ironic that the politicians claiming the mantle of, quote unquote, forgotten Americans in rural living are the same people who are saying like, hey, rural postal off- post offices, fuck them. Jane, I'm extremely upset at this completely gratuitous music man reference that you slipped in there. You know, it could be something for someone who's no relation or it could be it could be something for you we keep Dara. we keep threatening to do a do a do a musical american musical comedy weeds if the news stops you know we should we should get back on that it's true matt you made a reference to the kind of long-standing interest of the postal workers union to get democrats interested in this and it really has been the case that a lot of the stuff that we've been hearing like Many of these policy changes have not been acknowledged by like post the post office's Office of Public Affairs. A lot of these things are coming out because employees or union leadership have been leaking information and like raising the alarm about this is going to harm our operations. That's something that is that has been I've you know, I've seen this with both unions that were frustrated with Obama's approach to immigration. And now, you know, the asylum officers union has been very vocal in opposing Trump. That can be a very strong resource for public knowledge. It also indicates a certain breakdown in the internal labor management relations, because once you've gone to the press and it's clear that you've gone to the press, and once you're filing in federal court against your management, you've made it a lot harder for management to 
you know, or, or not like, I don't mean to like blame one, you know, I don't mean to, to victim blame here, but like it's that indicates that it's not as likely that labor and management are working behind the scenes on kind of bread and butter stuff to, you know, to smooth easy problems. So I think it's worth, you know, being aware of this trend as informed citizens and, and news consumers, and also worth bearing in mind that public sector workers are authorities on they're doing their jobs and what's different that they, you know, probably have some degree of expertise and this is not going to make it possible for us to function in the way we're accustomed to functioning. They may not always have the most insight into motivations because they may not have they may not have any information about why things are being done that isn't already public. They may be fitting the same, you know, they may be fitting their assumptions onto the same available facts that you have. Yes. All right. Is it time? Is it time to white paper? Yeah, this, let's white this, paper. This one's a doozy. Take a break. All right. So this week we are talking about a paper called "It's All About the Parents: Inequality Transmission Across Three Generations in Sweden" from Per Engzel, Karina Mood, and Jan O. Janssen, presumably, since they're a couple of a couple of Stockholm appointees and one Oxford appointee. This is. Swedish administrative data, which is, as we know, the uh, single best way to get your white paper mentioned on the weeds. But using Swedish administrative data, which for those of us, for those of you who are not regular weeds consumers, is uniquely useful in social science because it's so complete, because there are so many data sets that are well integrated that it allows for a really long term lens that isn't possible with most other countries' data sets. And so in this case, they're using it to examine the question of, can we figure out anything about the likely socioeconomic attainment or class attainment of children based not just on where their parents are, but where their grandparents are? Is there anything about where uh, about your grandparents' status that predicts where you're going to end up independent of where your parents have ended up. There are kind of logical explanations you could offer for why this might be the case. The actual literature is mixed. They basically conclude that if you have robust enough data about your par- about parents' attainment, that it captures a lot of the things that might not otherwise go included in just basic how much money are you making data, that the effect of grandparents pretty much goes away. So to the extent that there's more to wealth and status transmission than just, you know, how much do your parents make and how educated are they? Those are other things that your parents are giving to you that aren't easily captured in the data. It's not that your grandparents are separately a source of social value or worth that can be totally divorced from what they've already done in parenting your parents. Right. It's fascinating to me how we're thinking about um, different elements. I, I love the inspection of personal traits in the middle generation, which is, and they reference the father's cognitive ability. So essentially, they've had themselves have had challenges trying to figure out the impact of grandparents because of the obvious issue that even when you control for the parents for that middle generation, you still have what they refer to as omitted variable bias. And so it's a fascinating paper about how they are trying to think about not just whether grandparents influence the grandchildren, but to how and to asking very specific questions about how that happens. The other problem with the literature, which I think is worth bringing up because it's a good example of how something that you can think of as a core question that's motivating social science will actually get totally ignored by the way that you ultimately construct the data. If what you're looking for in the grandparent question is, what are the benefits of kind of an amorphous dimension of class, right? Like things that are clearly a status that we would associate with class, but that aren't captured in hard metrics of socioeconomic attainment, like income or for that matter like household wealth or even to a certain extent level of education level of professional prestige like what are the less tangible benefits of class that's a, a reasonable way to construct the grandparent question but the way that the literature has gone about looking at the grandparent question has been going grandfather to father to child 
which isn't how class works. I mean, it's also not how, you know, 20th or 21st century economies work. But the absence of the mother, much less the grandmother in this literature, has made it very difficult to actually assess whether what's going on here is something about the transmission of economic wealth or whether what's going on here is the transmission of economic plus some other kind of compounding benefits that allow a child to do okay, even if their parents are kind of, you know, downwardly mobile. Yeah, I mean, so I was not very familiar with the the sociology literature that this is engaging with and i i found the paper a little bit um a little bit confusing on that you know it's it's hard whenever you see a finding and you don't know the like the other things that that the authors have read like like what is this about but a paper i have read about intergenerational social mobility in sweden is by gregory clark and he does an interesting thing where he's trying to look at a much longer term than administrative data will give you. Um, And so what he does is he looks at people's last names. And basically, his claim is that some Swedish people have fancy last names associated with uh, aristocratic houses. Some Swedish people have um, not quite as fancy last names, where they're like Latin-y words. Some people have lower middle class last names where they're named after an occupation, like the Swedish equivalent of being Cooper or something like that in English. And then low class Swedes have last names that are son. That's like you were just like a rando peasant. So they're like, oh, okay, you're Janssen. And so he shows that uh, surnames were fixed in the 18th century. Obviously, people can change their names, but but that was when they adopted like the, the modern practice that you inherit your dad's surname. Um, and so today, people with son names in Sweden are half as likely to be lawyers as you would think based on their overall presence in the population. They're about as quarter likely to be doctors. Um, and so he does a few other things like that, right? And so he's being he's being much cruder than this paper. He's only looking at strict patrilineal descent. He's only looking at very vague sense of social privilege, like lawyers and doctors are high prestige people. Um, but what he is finding is like a really high level of stickiness, which you could explain as like chained father to son kind of stuff. But his interest in it is that Sweden compared to other to the United States, say, has much more father to son mobility. And so he says, look, what's happening here is that because Sweden doesn't have that much inequality, there's a lot of short term intergenerational mobility because like the the distance between the rungs on the ladder is not that high. But over the long run, like relatively elite Swedish families are still entrenched in fairly elite occupations with maybe some, you know, college professors or poets or nonprofit attorneys or, you know, various things you can do where you don't make that much money, but you're still like a high status person. And that those high status families have have propagated for like literally hundreds of of years in in his telling. And so I guess it's an interesting then like much more detailed, much more definitive supplement to his finding that this does not seem to be because the extended family like per se does something for you, right? It's either chaining or like actual hereditary characteristics that are kind of propagating. And to be clear, like it it has declined like over 400 years, just like less than you might think. And when when Vox was new, I wrote about a a similar paper from from Florence in Italy where they have pretty good records going to the Renaissance, and they showed that like Families that were rich 700 years ago in Florence are like still in disproportionately in the Florentine elite. So I don't know. There's like this. There's a lot going on. History is uh, is very sticky. Yes. Yes. It's interesting also because we uh, unintentionally had a conversation yesterday about uh, on on the old internets about um, the sub the concept of the idea of being working class. 
uh, which I think we should do an entire separate episode on, because apparently it means 87 separate things, depending on your political motivations. But thinking about the stickiness of, of history and thinking about the stickiness of generational wealth gets into a lot of issues that we're having a conversation about right now, um, talking about inequality, racial inequality and racial inequity, where you have a the concept of generational wealth that for some Americans could have started developing in the 1780s, 1790s, if you want to think about Boston Brahmins more than I actually do. And for many Americans could have started in, oh... 1967, roughly, if we're giving a little bit of a buffer after uh, immigration reform of 1965 and the Civil Rights Act. So I think that that stickiness is something that we see here. But also, I think America does not have the same kind of centuries old generational wealth of European countries for entirely understandable reasons. But I do think that there are some interesting crossover here that we can think about in other areas. I mean, yes. No, no. I mean, I, I, I do think that's true. But it's I mean, it's interesting. Just like one of the things this 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 paper is really getting at is like trying to understand, like, what is the source of inherited intergenerational advantage, which I think is a lot less clear than its existence. And, you know, you were saying about about like how to define social class, like it's the kind of thing where people show up with like different predispositions and then they look at this fact about the 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 stickiness of of social class and social hierarchy and often it will feel quote-unquote obvious to them like what the answer is but when researchers look into it right like the the point of of this paper is that like even though obviously it has happened that somebody's grandparents have like given them help with something in life because they're famous, important people that like in the statistical aggregate, that is not what's going on here. Um, I did an internship at a company my grandfather founded. So like, you know, it, it has happened in the course of human history, but like in the aggregate, that's not the reason why families, at least Swedish families seem to have, um, this, this long tenured kind of stuff. But, you know, like, does that generalize outside of Sweden? Does that generalize? to a further extended family. Um, it's really hard to say. I mean, I love Swedish administrative data, but particularly on a question like, how much do people care about their cousins? Like, I'm not sure you should assume that information from one country transposes to another. Yes. Every unequal country, equal countries are all alike. Every unequal country is unequal in, in its own way. Ah, so true. So true. All right. And uh, with that, uh, let's let's wrap it up. Um, I didn't even plug my book, so I should. Pre-order One Billion Americans. It's amazing. And uh, thanks uh, to our sponsors. Uh, thanks uh, to Jane and Dara. Thanks, as always, to our producer, Jeffrey Geld. And the Weeds will be back on Friday. More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today. 